Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, I have a couple little stories to share with you to kick off this week's uh, pod. Uh, and they come together under the heading, maybe be careful what you wish for, or don't kick the hornet's nest, or you don't play boxing or something. Um, the, the first comes from England, uh, Loughborough University, Leicester specifically, where uh, former heavyweight titleist Anthony Joshua has set up camp in advance of his rematch with Alexander Usyk. Uh, apparently, he was walking through the campus when a bunch of drunken students, which may be a redundancy, I was going to say drunken English students, which is even more of a redundancy, um, apparently leaned out of the windows of their dorm and began shouting abuse at him, accusing him of ducking a fight with Tyson Fury, among other things. But much to their surprise, apparently AJ gained access to the building and then like knocked on the door and came into their dorm room and promptly berated them. Uh, according to an eyewitness, he said, remember you're running your mouth because when I bring people up here and I start cracking your glass jaws, none of you will like it. When your jaws start breaking and people start chasing you out of this uni, none of you will like it. Watch your mouths because you don't know who you're talking to sometimes, which does not sound like Anthony Joshua. <laughs> it must say, so obviously his buttons have been pushed a little bit and i'm sure that everyone who has taken abuse from anonymous internet trolls was cheering him on as he acted out his widespread fantasy of confronting his tormentors i doubt they'll do that again it actually reminded me of uh, jules and vincent in pulp fiction mm. although there was no word as to whether the students were eating big kahuna burgers at the time <laughs> okay. um but wait there's more uh meanwhile in australia uh, lightweight champion George Cambosis Jr. has been busy promoting his upcoming bout with Devin Haney, and that included a quote-unquote sparring session with popular TV host Grant Denyer, uh, which was apparently going fine until Denyer uh, seemingly like misunderstood exactly what his role was in this situation and decided to bite off a bit more than he could chew. Denyer said, he was going gentle and letting me throw some punches, then I said to him, I wanted to experience what it was like to be hit. Oh, dear. Uh, he gets to six or seven, I assume, punches. And I realize I can't talk. He was knocking the wind out of me. I couldn't call for help. I couldn't say my safe word. I had no air in my lungs. My face started to turn a funny color. I went to vomit my toasted sandwich. <laughs> he came out of his psychosis and he backed off. It's the toasted sandwich detail that really makes the story for me personally. Um, it actually reminds me of a time when we were at HBO and I was trying to persuade our editor, Michael Gluckstadt, to let me do a piece that involved me putting on an insane amount of thick body padding and allowing Gennady Golovkin to hit me. And Clark refused, point blank. <laughs> and in hindsight, that was probably the right call. Uh, yeah, I, I would say it was. Um, have I ever told you my Bobby Chez story? I don't believe so. And I don't think I've told this on a podcast. Um, this is the closest thing I have to qualifying as taking a punch from a pro boxer. It was at the Showtime office, actually, uh, back in 1998 uh, when I was with The Ring. We arranged this whole thing where I was going to ghostwrite a piece by Bobby Chez, who was Showtime's expert analyst at the time, a piece by Bobby Chez on how to watch a fight on TV and really get the most out of it and know what to look for. I think it was headlined the best way to watch a fight or something like that. And in the process of it, Bobby starts talking about the difference between arm punches and punches where you really step in. And he has me stand up 
so he can demonstrate something. Uh, I was I was 23 at the time, in excellent shape. If ever I was going to be able to absorb a shot from Bobby Chez, this was the time in my life. Um, so he demonstrates how, not a punch, just extending his arm straight out and then stepping in with his body weight behind it, he's going to be able to shove me off balance. And indeed, just a stiff arm and an open palm, he steps in, and I go stumbling backward a bit. Then he sets out to show how ineffective a punch, thrown hard, but just a pure arm punch, no body movement, no twisting torso, just the arm, how ineffective it is, and hits me on the shoulder with just the inside of a closed fist, and he's like, see, nothing. And oh my god, it hurt. It was all I could do to pretend I wasn't in pain and nod and agree and pretend his message had been delivered. But it really stung. I had a little black and blue mark the next day. So so like the Australian TV reporter, yeah. I got off a little easier than he did. But I learned the same lesson. Try to avoid taking anything yes. resembling a punch from a professional boxer if you can. They can hurt us mere mortals pretty easily without even trying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, in hindsight, I'm not entirely sure what I thought I was going to achieve with this whole like Golovkin story. <laughs> I, I really liked the idea of it, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I had in mind like wearing one of those body protectors that Freddie Roach always wears in the ring right. when, he, when he was. But I think probably a, a big fat inflatable sumo suit might have been more appropriate, <laughs> and even that probably wouldn't have protected me. Yeah, still maybe a little yeah. too risky. Uh, yeah, the, the word liability came mm, up when. Right. when 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 we had the I had the conversation with Gluck. Oh yeah, if if Gluck hadn't rejected the idea, the legal department certainly would have. <laughs> exactly. Um, meanwhile, I do have a quick comment also on the AJ story. Yeah. Um, AJ, I watched the video of it. There's like a 15 second clip, and him very calmly verbally threatening his hecklers. When you compare it to Mike Tyson turning around uh -huh. and punching and bloodying his heckler, it's kind of a perfect distillation of their ring personas, right? You know, right. prime Tyson, take no prisoners, all out assault. Anthony Joshua, he has the total package to intimidate, but isn't right. always going to step on the gas. It's like even here with these college kids, he's a little caught between styles, I'd say. <laughs> But I do feel confident that they're not going to, they're going to be at least selective about who I they would think so. use from what they consider to be a safe distance. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. Coming up on this show, we will be previewing next week's Showtime Championship Boxing Card, headlined by Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton taking on Daniel Roman, uh, as well as the big lightweight clash in Australia between the aforementioned George Cambosis Jr. and Devin Haney, and also the rematch in Japan between Naoya Inoue and future Hall of Famer Nonito Donaire. Uh, we will touch on a couple of news items, including confirmation that Canelo Alvarez will take on the also aforementioned Gennady Golovkin for a third time in September. Hall of Fame announcer Al Bernstein will join us. Eric will give me his list of the five best fights at Barclays Center. But first, to the most recent fight card at Barclays, where on Saturday night, Javante Tank Davis remained undefeated as he knocked out Rolando Raleigh Romero in the sixth round of a lightweight contest. Yep, in front of a sold-out crowd of 18,970 fans, including Madonna, uh, Davis waited for the right moment to get into the groove. See what I did there? Ah. After a close first five rounds, and Romero went down like he'd been touched for the very first time.
Okay, now now I'm trying way too hard. I'll stop, I promise. Uh, I'm sure Javante cherished the moment. <laughs> yes, I imagine he did, and Rally Romero, not so much. Um, so quick details, taking it from the beginning. Romero made no attempt to deliver on his promise of a first-round KO, but he did seem to me to win the round by landing a nice shot at the bell, and he might have hurt Davis just a bit in the second round, and Davis did go down soon after, but it was correctly ruled a push. For the next few rounds, Tank was moving, fainting, and looking to counter trying to lead Romero into a mistake. The rounds were close. The action was measured. It was edge of your seat with the feeling that either guy could land a big punch at any moment. Javante started to maybe take over a bit by landing a few flush straight left hands in the fifth, but it was basically up in the air with the judges' scores split through five, and then, boom, late in round six, Romero missed a punch and left himself off balance and vulnerable, and Davis connected with a left to the chin that sent him pitching forward into the ropes and down. He beat the count of referee David Fields, but his legs were not cooperating, and the fight was stopped at 239 of the round. Romero lost his O. He's now 14-1 and with 12 KOs, while Davis goes to 27-0, and 25 knockouts. So, Kieran, in making your prediction last week, you called the scenario almost precisely that Romero would begin opening up and Davis would knock him out with a short counter, although you thought it would be an uppercut, and in the seventh round instead of the sixth, not quite as crystal ball brilliant as my prediction for the co-main, but we'll get to that later. Uh, yes. uh, you almost nailed it. So, Kieran, break it down for me. How did Davis get the win, and what would you like to see from him next? Well, as you noted, there was plenty of talk beforehand about Romero's punching power, mostly from Romero, but the big difference, as we'd discussed you know, leading up to it, was always going to be Davis's boxing ability, which I think continues to be somewhat underrated he's not just the guy with a big punch uh, Javante Davis he can box he can move he's got good defense the most important thing with Tank is he's very smart in the ring and when you're smart in the ring you can see the chess moves chess game unfold a couple moves in advance and when you can do that you're going to be more relaxed when you're relaxed you can accomplish so much more Uh, Romero fought for the most part, much more within himself than I expected and, and that we're used to seeing. His defense was tighter. His punches were straighter. Um, but, you know, I thought that, you know, Davis made the calculation that that was only going to last so long and there was going to come a point where Romero reverted to type. And mm. and he withstood those first couple of rounds that you talked about. I, I did give Raleigh both of those opening rounds, rounds one and two. Yeah. Um, But then by round three, it looked to me like Davis was starting to feel more comfortable as if he was starting to figure him out. Romero's an awkward guy to try to time, but I got the sense that Davis was generally beginning to figure out when he was going to throw and how. He was getting his defense and upper body movement tiled in, but he wasn't ready to launch a counterattack. And I think to a large extent, that was because... Romero was doing a surprisingly good job of controlling the distance, of, of, of sort of taking that extra step back when he moved out to make sure that Davis was out of range. So, you know, Tank kind of took his time and decided to find a way to get him in range. You mentioned it, uh, especially around five. It looked to me like, OK, now he's dialed in. Now he's ready to start taking it up a notch. Those those lead lefts were starting to land. He was jabbing well to the body. It all felt as if by then, by round five, it was really starting to click. and um, and, you know, and that I wonder if that was maybe enough to put that scintilla of doubt into Romero's head, make him feel that he had to start stepping forward. And when he did that, he stepped right into to Davis's danger zone. That's exactly what Davis was waiting for. And, and when he did, you know, Davis uncorked that beautiful left hand. Um, 
and I don't want to give the impression that this was a walk in the park for Davis, you know, because it wasn't. Um, it was a tense, close contest, like you said. It was not at all unreasonable to have Romero up uh, through five rounds. But it felt to me that the arc of the contest was, especially from about round three onwards, always starting to bend in one direction. Uh, I thought it was a very professional, mature performance from Davis. I, I thought he did well to dispatch a strong, confident foe, but a foe who just didn't have the all-round skills to ultimately truly trouble him at the end. Um, as for what happens next, look, Tanks built himself into a star by feasting on generally good, but not great opposition. In the case of Leo Santa Cruz, very good, but undersized opposition. Tanks a big star. Mayweather Promotions has done a good job of building and protecting their asset. I think it's unclear as to what that relationship is going to be like going forward. But there is exceptional opposition available to him in the lightweight division. And, and I do think now is the time where we need to see him up against some of that opposition. Yeah. The Cambosas Haney winner is an obvious one if the politics can be dealt with. And so too is Ryan Garcia, who, who was ringside and who said that he wanted the fight. But it's a little discouraging that Leonard Ellaby was saying, ah, you know, he's Garcia's kind of imagining all of that. Um, We'll we'll see, but there are two very obvious fights to be made there for Tank Davis, and two fights, at least one of which we'd want to see sooner, I think, rather than later. Um, Davis has done really well. I think he's shown himself to be an extremely talented as well as exciting and popular fighter. But I do think it is time now for us to see exactly who out of this crop of youngins is is the top dog at lightweight. Yeah, some someday the four princes or yep. five princes or five and a half princes or whatever exactly. it ends up being, we'll, uh, we'll start uh, mingling with each other. Exactly. Well, yeah, we hope so. Yeah. Um, Romero walked out of the ring before Jim Gray could interview him, but he did show up for the post-fight press conference uh, where he insisted that, and I quote, I won every moment of that fight. I exposed them and we need to run that shit back. Uh, I was winning that effing fight and I just got hit with a clean shot. That's all. That's that. I had him running like a bitch the entire fight. Um, I'm not sure that he'd actually watch the fight back at that point. <laughs> probably not. Um, probably not. Um, Davis, in contrast, simply stated, I don't think people deserve a rematch if they get knocked out like that. Um, I'm not going to waste your time asking you whether you think there will or should be a rematch. But what did you think uh, of Romero's performance overall? Did it match, exceed, or fall short of your expectations? And uh, is there anything else you want to add on Tank Davis? Uh, what I'd say about Raleigh is that he showed he belonged. Mm -hmm. Right up until the moment he didn't, um, you know, through five rounds, he was maybe slightly exceeding my expectations or, or at the very least living up to them. I guess you could say his round one was disappointing uh, based on what he predicted, but that was right. all bluster. We kind of yeah. knew that it would have been silly to tell Tank Davis you're going to knock him out in the first round and then hand him the gift of wildly trying to knock him out <laughs> right. in the first round. But no, Raleigh was boxing fairly well, looking confident not having big issues with Gervonta's southpaw stance. He did flinch really badly on one yes. face. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, I was impressed. I had him up 3-2 to two personally, and then he made a really bad mistake, more egregious than I would have expected from him against a known knockout artist like Tank, and that was that. And so I think he showed he can compete against the best. He's not a chump. But he by no means deserves a rematch, and he doesn't deserve an immediate title shot against some other belt holder. But I'd love to see him in with a lower end of the top 10 contender and maybe earn another shot. Certainly possible that he still has a bright future. Um, as for thoughts on Davis, 
not too much to add on top of your analysis. Uh, you, you covered most of it. He looked very poised throughout. Um, like Canelo, for better or for worse, he is a guy who believes in his power, believes yeah. he'll get you, doesn't mind losing some rounds. And in this case, really felt like he was setting it up all the way. Yeah. Um, whether it ended up coming in the 6th or the 7th, as you predicted, or the 11th, as I predicted, clearly he was confident it was going to come. One criticism, after the fight was over, he ran to the middle of the ring to taunt a still wobbly Roly. I missed that. Yeah, um, it was just like screaming at him for a second while Roly was kind of out of it. This was, you know, not like immediately after the fight was waved off, but maybe a minute later as the ring was kind of filling up. I know there was bad blood and all, but just no need for that. The fight's over. That bothered me a little. And then other tank observation. The man is seriously running out of tattoo real estate. He, Isn't he? He's, he's going to have to start tattooing internal organs soon. There's like no space <laughs> left on the outside. Um, one other thing about this fight, it's the subject of my pick for Tweet of the Week. And this is an unusual pick in that I don't agree with the tweet, um, but I think it's a great conversation starter. Um, sort of sort of like a quote-unquote hot take, but it's a mm -hmm. genuine take. It's not some manufactured first-take nonsense. Um, it comes from my former podcast partner, your blood rival and sworn enemy, Bill Detloff. <laughs> um, he did not care for the stoppage by David Fields, and he tweeted, I guess in response to a lot of people on Twitter approving of the stoppage, quote, This generation of fight fans is entirely unacquainted with the idea that a fighter can be hurt not entirely in control of himself, and still want and deserve a chance to continue, Matthew Saad Muhammad would have been a sub-500 fighter today. Um, I think it's a fascinating and important premise, although A, I don't know that Saad was actually hurt that badly in more than half his fights. That's, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration. And B, I sort of got where Bill was coming from watching the knockout in real time. Same here. But on the yes. replays, you, you could see how Romero's legs were betraying his brain the entire time he's you know on the canvas and one leg is twitching and flailing about beyond yeah. his control he gets up and his balance is never there i wouldn't have objected vehemently if fields had let him take a couple more punches and see what happens but i prefer the choice that fields made i don't think raleigh was equipped to defend himself but uh, you know i'm curious for your thoughts kieran on the stoppage in this instance and the idea that in a big title fight if a guy is in rough shape, kind of wobbly, but he beats the count, give him a chance. That's where legends are made sometimes. Yeah, no, in real time, I also thought, oh, that's slightly odd timing. And then as soon as we saw that replay and you just see the way that Raleigh couldn't plant his feet properly right. and, and how long it took him. He did respond when David Fields said, move over here. But it took him a little while to understand what David Fields was right. saying to him. And then when he did move, it was a bit uncertainly and he couldn't plant himself. I think I, I think there are, you know, when we talk about stoppages and when to stop it and, and when not, there are different elements and different types of being hurt, right? There's being hurt where you, you you've got it about you to put your hands up and retreat to the ropes a little bit and you're clearly gotten your bell rung but you think, okay, I can defend myself and get out of this, then there's that kind of stoppage where you can't even plant yourself, where you might know 
what's going on, but your body's betraying you. Yes. And there was a little bit of what was going on there, I think. Mm -hmm. Part of Raleigh knew what was going on. Although as I was watching them go back to the dressing room, I think there might have been less of him that knew what was going on even then than I'd really realized. He still looked a bit uncertain. Yeah, and then. it almost seemed for a second like his dad was telling him yeah. what happened in the fight, perhaps. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I think... You know, it's all about the ability to defend yourself and you can be hurt and still just about able to defend yourself and you can be hurt and just not even able to get a purchase in terms of balance and, and get your body to, to obey you. And I think that's what was going on there. And that's why, you know, and a good referee knows that difference. Mm -hmm. And he also has to have the context, the referee, of knowing who the other guy is. Yes, and good point. knowing fully well that Tank Davis is going to go in and try to take his head off. And I think we're probably in a different situation now, being able to talk about Romero maybe somewhat exceeding our expectations and being in a position to rebuild. Whereas had Tank gone in and just, I think if he'd landed one clean punch, he might have knocked him out clean. And, and I think then maybe that's more satisfying for Tank and, and for people watching, but it works out much better for Romero. So, no, I, I thought the widespread you know, response by and large was actually pretty good. I, I saw a lot of people on social media having the same reaction that in the immediate aftermath, they thought it was a bit much. And then once you see that he, his legs just are not there, that I thought most people sort of acknowledged that. Um, I, I get where Bill is, is coming from. It's interesting a man who loves animals so much, but is perfectly happy to see human <laughs> beings get the snot kicked out of them. But uh, I, I get where he's coming from, but I don't think this was that kind of stoppage that you could say, oh, let him take a few more punches. I, I think he was done. It, it has definitely changed with time. He's right to observe that, that Saad Muhammad, some sure. of his fights probably would have been stopped earlier these days, and he might not have been able to pull off some of those comebacks, that they definitely let guys take more punishment back then. But I'm not sure if that was a good thing. I, I, I mean, it, right. may, it may be that maybe it's gone too far in the other direction for some people. Um, certainly, you know, I, I will complain when I think a fight is stopped sure. too soon, but, uh, but I, I didn't think this one fit that example. I thought this was perfectly stopped. Had, had it been later in the round and David Fields had heard the 10 second clapper while he was right. doing the count. And he knows that there's like three seconds left by the time he's done observing rally Romero then I might have said, yeah, you know, he should have let him see if he can absorb another punch or two and get to his corner and see if he recovers. But given that there was 20 seconds left in the round, absolutely, I thought the stoppage was the right move there. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the co-main. Eris Landilara was predictably far too much for Spike O'Sullivan in a scheduled 12-round middleweight contest. Lara hardly seemed to break a sweat as he dropped O'Sullivan with a pair of left hands in the fourth, hurt him badly at the end of the seventh, and stopped him at 23 seconds of round eight, exactly as I foretold. Um, well, I didn't specify the number of seconds, but I did get the right round, and I will gloat about that some more when we go over the scores in our picks contest. Uh, anyway, with the win, Lara moves to 29-3-3 and with 17 KOs, and Spike O'Sullivan falls to 31-5 and with 27 KOs. Kieran... You questioned beforehand whether O'Sullivan deserved to be in the co-main of a pay-per-view. Did this confirm your hunch, or, or was this all due to Lara just being that good, just continuing to fight at an elite level at age 39? Yeah, it had a lot to do with O'Sullivan not being at the required level. I mean, look, we've seen him step up several times now um, against the likes of Munguia and Lemieux and now Lara, and the results always been the same. Um, he's an entertaining character, like I said last week, you know, with an excellent backstory. 
he can continue to actually have a good career, at least for another couple of years in mid-card fights or top small cards, but not at world level. Um, that said, Lara also showed what has made him such a consistently good boxer and what's making him an increasingly fun one. Look, his legs are gone, Lara, right? At least to the extent of his being able to do what he used to do so effortlessly, which is move around the ring and utterly befuddle his opponent. But his hand speed and punching accuracy and ring IQ all remain. And so he's taken them, having to discard, you know, the, the footwork and created an Erislandi Lara 2.0. Mm. And, and given how much of his dominance previously was based off of his footwork the fact that you know and the fact that people just couldn't even catch him the fact that now he has for several years been able to compensate for losing that footwork by deploying a really altogether different style of boxing is testament to what a talented and really smart boxer he is um i would like to see him up against one of the top dogs at, at 160 and i i, I wouldn't fear for him at all even at his advanced age if he were to get one of those fights i mean maybe not a golovkin but right. like a jamal charlo would be a really interesting contest it, look he'll fall short of a place in the hall of fame he's got he's had too many close if highly controversial losses in his big fights but he's very much in the hall of the very good erislandi lara and he continues to be um and uh it's, it's kind of interesting to see him now become an entertaining fighter as 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 well as just a difficult one to face yeah he, he's fits that classic category that i bring up sometime of guys who don't belong in the hall of fame but i'm gonna be upset if he doesn't get his name on the ballot i think he deserves right. to at least be considered even if we all know he's not going to get the votes um and, and uh one quick uh betting related note about the two fights we've discussed so far DraftKings had the over-under on the Lara O'Sullivan fight at 7.5 rounds mm. and on the Davis-Romero fight at 6.5 rounds. Those are some pretty strong lines and and some thrilling sweats uh, if you had the unders. Uh, uh, br brutal sweats if you had the overs and the knockout came just a little too soon for you. Oh, yeah. Um, the two opening bouts on the pay-per-view, well, there's no danger of any knockout there. They both went the distance. In junior middleweight action, undefeated prospect Jesus Ramos gained a measure of revenge for Luke Santa Maria's decision win over his uncle Abel, uh, picking up a decision win of his own by scores of 98-92 and 97-93 twice. Ramos moves to 19-0 with 15 knockouts knockouts um and we said knockages there that's when you combine knockouts and stoppages <laughs> yeah knockages and stopouts yeah, yeah. that can be the new thing uh santa maria is now 13 3 and 1 with seven stopouts and <laughs> in the opener junior lightweight eduardo ramirez battled to a majority win decision win over luis melendez by scores of 95 95 96 94 and surely too wide 98 92 he climbs to 27, 2, and 3 with 12 KOs, while Melendez falls to 17 and 2 with 13 KOs. Uh, anything stand out to you in those opening pair of fights? Yeah, actually, the first thing that stood out was that this was a real fight crowd at Barclays. During these first two bouts on the pay-per-view, the arena was far from empty. A lot of people in their seats getting their money's worth and, and getting into these fights. Um one of which was a bit of a challenge to get into, though, and that, that was Ramos Santa Maria. A fight mm. never quite broke out there. Not not a lot of drama. Santa Maria did okay, but I think quite clearly belongs at 147 pounds, not at 154. He should drop right back to welterweight. And I wouldn't mind seeing him on Showtime again at that weight. Uh, he he mm -hmm. certainly has spunk. Um, but he was never quite going to be able to beat Ramos, even though he did keep it somewhat competitive. Ramos certainly didn't dominate like a minus 1100 favorite. Um, 
I came away feeling like he's a solid prospect, but not a special one. Um, yeah. You know, he's a southpaw. He's huge for 154 pounds. Got this really wide nice, back, yeah. massive lats. Um, some of the tools to be there are special, but I wasn't seeing it on this night. He was very mm. selective with his punches. I thought he looked better in the second half of the fight when he started freelancing a bit with his lead hand very low. He looked more fluid that way. Mm-hmm. But all in all, Ramos didn't quite live up to my expectations. Um, but Ramirez Melendez, once again, this is like three or four in a row now. Showtime delivering exactly what we want from an opening bout. Close, competitive, hard fought, good action. I really enjoyed the infighting. And Ramirez had to dig deep to pull it out. Yeah. I had him down four to two through six. And then he rallied, I think, either 6-4 to four or 5-5 five, five are good scores. The ninth was a, a real swing round. That 98-92 score from John Potteraj, as you mentioned, that was off the mark. Um, but Melendez's stock, I thought, went up in defeat. And Ramirez's might have gone up also as he pulled out a close one. Um, and speaking of stocks going up... Let's talk Uh-oh. about my performance in the picks competition, shall we? No, uh, <laughs> The people want to hear it, Karen. Just doing my job. Just informing them of the facts. Uh, you were leading 39-34 coming into this card. We both had Ramirez by unanimous decision. It was a majority decision. We each got two points for that. I had Ramos by unanimous decision. You had him by late stoppage, so I got three to your one. The big swing. I had Lara KO8 exactly, as I noted earlier. A little lucky, certainly. You know, the bell saved O'Sullivan in both rounds four and seven, had the, had the knockdown and the getting hurt come a little earlier. But I'll take it. Um, I get five points. You said Lara by decision and get one point. And you had Javante KO7, very close. I had Javante KO11, not quite as close. But both picks are worth the same two points. So what do you know? There's a new king of the mountain. I went from down five to up one. It's 46-45 with five months down and seven to go, which, of course, means what, Kieran? Where do you have me? Exactly where I <laughs> want you. I'm uncomfortable with the front runner status Clearly. there. It was, <laughs> it was just too much pressure. And, uh, yeah, I... Um... Yep, I, I decided to uh, allow you to make a contest of it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, as do the listeners, I'm sure. It's very exciting to have us uh, close again after you were up by, what, uh, 12 maybe at your yeah. peak? Something like yeah. that? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, we needed uh, Spiker Sullivan to last a few seconds less and Raleigh Romero to last a few seconds more, and it would have been at least a lot closer, but there you go. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, should you... Uh, pull back into the lead by the end of the year. I will, of course, remind you at the last minute of that fight where you had picked one result and then we found out it was a 10-rounder instead of a 12-rounder oh, and you had to change right. your pick and got the, fi- right. the full five-point bonus on the changed pick. So uh, let's, let, let's, let's not worry too much about who got a little lucky and who didn't on this night. Uh, you're, you're already making a list of your grievances and anticipation. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, that one's been in my pocket all along. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I didn't lose by 12. I wanted to get to within five, so I'd at least had a, a grounds for complaint. Uh, yes. All right. Um, our guest this week was calling the action ringside in Brooklyn alongside Abner Morris and Barry Tompkins. He is, of course, Hall of Fame announcer, the one and only Al Bernstein. Al, uh, I want to say thanks, as always, for joining us, especially on this holiday weekend. But before we get into the fights, I have to ask you, is there any truth at all to the rumor that you had to undergo a last-minute wardrobe change when you realized that Abner was rocking the exact jacket and shades combo that you had planned on wearing on Saturday night? You should say that because uh, that was the exact suit I was going to wear. Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. So we had to run out. We had to get another suit for me. Right. Yeah, I, I've now, I have a new nickname for Abner. I call him 
the pastel king Mm. nice i don't think that's the kind of nickname you would use like he would use as a fighter abner <laughs> mares the pastel no, king, okay. abner, yeah. the pastel king mares i don't think yeah. he would use that but yeah it's not going to put the fear of god in opponents is it really it, was, uh, it is he he wears those suits very well i'm not sure i could yeah yeah he can <laughs> rock them that is the truth that is true yeah he does i wouldn't mind seeing you try the hot pink one time just so we can confirm or deny well, whether here, you can okay. rock it now uh, a full disclosure Two, three weeks ago, I went to a Randy Rainbow uh, concert. Okay. So needless to say, when I went there, there were a few people in hot pink uh, uh, suits. So, you know, yeah, maybe I'm, I might branch out a little bit, Eric. And, 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 I'll, and I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'll mention to uh, the, the executives at Showtime that my idea sprang from you. Oh please! Okay. Yeah, okay. throw me under the bus by all means. Yeah, yeah, I'll, okay. I'll you know, get you in trouble. <laughs> okay. Um, so when Karen and I were previewing the Davis Romero fight on last week's podcast, um, we talked about how Javante has become a bona fide star in the sport, uh, a development that I'm not sure either of us would have predicted just a few years ago. Certainly, Saturday night, a knockout win in front of almost 20,000 at Barclays just pushes him further in that direction. So I'm curious, Al, for your take on Tank's rise to stardom. What, what do you see as the reasons for him having this level of success? And, and would you say he's become the biggest American draw in the sport right now? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing because, and this is no disrespect to Mayweather Promotions, but sometimes, like this fight, I can't say it received so much amazing promotion in the New York area or elsewhere that, you know, you knew, oh, it was going to catch on. This is an organic thing that happens with uh, Tank Davis. And one of the things is that I looked up at the crowd, you know, 10 minutes before the main event. I was looking up and I looked in that crowd. And it reminded me, I looked at a sea of faces that were largely African-American, very young. And that's a, and that's a, that's a, uh, a demographic that doesn't always fill up the whole arena. You will right. see, of course, people of that nature there all the time. But this, they, were, they filled up most of those seats that I was looking at. And... He's, he, you know, he's very uh, connected to the hip hop community. He has a, he has a, a strong demographic. And then when you add to that, all boxing fans like knockout artists and they like people that are in exciting fights. And that's what uh, Tank Davis does. He is, and let's be, let's be really honest. He's done this without having a mega fight. Right. Now, some people criticize him for it. Some people say, well, it's just hard for them to make it, whatever. If he could fight, which we're all hoping he does, if, he can, if they can get him in against one of the top, super top lightweights next, that would only push this uh, process even farther along. 
Yeah, I think, you know, they've certainly been throwing the name Ryan Garcia out there, and that's the one that, like, could you could bigger? maybe fill Yankee Stadium with Javante Davis against <laughs> Ryan Garcia based on I, They could put it in an outdoors if they did it at the right time mm-hmm. uh, or if they put it in a uh, the Alamo Dome or something. I'm not right. saying that specifically, but, a, a, you know, an indoor arena, Allegiant Stadium, uh, a big, mm-hmm. a, an arena that could seat more than twenty or 25,000, you could put 40,000 people into that or Jerry World, maybe right. because of Ryan Garcia's, right. you know. Um, so it felt like a very mature performance from Tank to me. It felt like, you know, he knew what he needed to do. He, he sounded out Romero early, tasted his power. And then he sort of, you know, he waited for his moment to strike. You know, he sort of gradually pulled Romero in before doing that and you know and add to that the fact that he seemed pretty relaxed during fight week and even at times during the fight itself and I'm curious you know you've been calling his fights and talking to him in fighter meetings for years now is that increased maturity as palpable to you in person as it feels from a distance and how important is it do you think to his ongoing in-ring success yeah it is it is uh noticeable when you're around him now and you talk to him uh, you can tell, you can feel that he's trying. And, and, I, and I, by the way, I thought this is part of your question. So it's not, I'm not jumping off early. After the fight in the interview, I thought it was fascinating. He let us in on his thought process about how he was going to, after the fight, you know, he said, I could be real cocky here. Yeah. I thought, you know, shoot, I, you know, I put up with all that uh, stuff before the fight. Or to use a, a Joe Biden phrase, the malarkey before the fight. Doubt <laughs> right. would be the phrase that uh, uh, Davis would use. But he said, you know. But I thought, no, I'm not going to do that, and I, I, I'd rather take this approach. So I think that spoke volumes to the fact that he is thinking through everything he's doing uh, and the way he's acting, uh, and he's had some 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 glitches uh, out of the ring, uh, some behavior that was not the best and that, you know, he would like, I'm sure to, to clean up and figure out how to, how to do better. And he, you can feel it in him. You can feel that he, you know, he, he references the two young uh, uh, daughters he has, and he knows he's at an age, he's in his late twenties and he knows he's at an age where he needs, he even talked about keeping himself physically, uh, strong so that he can maximize his boxing career he does that he doesn't flame out too early because he knows he's starting to head into the last third of his boxing journey and he wants to make the most of it so those are all thought processes that mm. i think speak well to him mm. so i want to get your thoughts on the eris landy lara and the co-main uh, he looked you know, totally unbothered throughout his contest with yeah. Spike O'Sullivan till he ended it in the eighth, which was his third knockout win in his last four fights. Are you surprised at all by what an exciting fighter Lara has become these last few years? And where would you like to see him go next? I'm thinking, is he maybe the next logical opponent for Jamal Charlo if Charlo gets past uh, Machic Suletsky? Yeah, a, a very interesting uh, develop- the way Lara has developed. Now, early in his career, he had a couple of very exciting fights. One with Alfredo Angulo uh, was a, a wildly exciting brawl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that one was, you know, an example of how he could be, but he was still moving and being the, uh, the you know, the, the consummate boxer uh, and probably cost himself 
a couple of, you know, he's had some close decisions. And if he had simply been more active, a little more active, he might have won those fights. Uh, but in his, in, in the last several years, he, whether it's because of age and, and the fact that he simply can't move and can't be as quick on his feet as, as, uh, as before, he's been the same fighter that was kind of in that Angulo fight by necessity because Angulo simply wouldn't let him be the other person. So it all started with the Jared Hurd fight where he fought 12 amazing rounds, lost the decision when he was knocked down in the 12th round. Uh, it included the Brian Castaño fight where he had a, fifth, a 12 round draw with Castaño that was you know, wildly exciting. All of his fights, except for one in the last five or six fights, have been fought exactly the way he did against Spike O'Sullivan. I'm not surprised he's capable of doing it, but the fact that he's doing it you know, so well at this advanced stage is pretty amazing. Now, however, he is playing with fire because even in the Spike O'Sullivan fight, Spike O'Sullivan is a competent boxer who can beat lower level fighters and fighters on his level. Mm -hmm. He knows how to fight. And he was landing punches against Arislan Dilara. He would get him against the ropes, throw the double left hook, throw the uppercut. He knew what to do to try and win that fight. He just couldn't physically do it all the time. And he landed. So Arislan Dilara, now at 39, has what middleweights does he face where that those punches that land are not going to do serious damage to him? Uh, now, he, he has not been knocked out. He has not been, he's never been knocked out. And so he can, up to this point, he's been able to do it. But for instance, with a Jamal Charlo or Carlos Adamas, perfect mm -hmm. example. Will he be able to take those shots? We'll see. Mm -hmm. um, let's spin it ahead a week. Uh, we've got a, a lot of action coming up on Showtime and... Um, we are going to see Stephen Cowboy Steph Fulton uh, uh, next week. Um, his first fight since Brandon Figueroa, he takes on Daniel Roman. Having passed that big test against Figueroa, what do you want to see from Fulton? Not necessarily just in this fight, but going forward to continue to elevate himself in your eyes. Well, this fight, let's, I don't think we could talk about this fight in terms of one guy. Right. Even though your question is a fair question because Stephen right. Fulton has now you know, won the title, he unified the title, and he's the kind of fighter who's so exciting and, and, and so much fun to watch that that's the logical question. But here's why that's a tricky question. Danny Roman is a former champion who lost his title to Akhmadiev by this yeah. much, yeah. if he lost it. He and this fight we're going to see on Saturday night, I am predicting, will be one of the three best fights this mm. year. Yeah, It's, it's going to be. I, if I'm wrong about that, that's it. I'm announcing on the show here I'm retiring, guys. <laughs> so you have a scoop. If it's not one of the top fights this year, I'm just going to resign and, and stop doing boxing. Um, but it, the... <laughs> Now I'm really rooting for this to be a top three fight. <laughs> yeah, right. seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, or there now there may be some people listening and watching this who will be just the opposite. <laughs> oh, good. I hope it's a dog. But um, it, these two guys are brilliant technicians. Hmm. 
They're not super powerful punchers and they are volume punchers. So we're going to have a war. Now, back to your question, though, about Stephen Fulton. This, even though everyone might not know it, this fight is a super litmus test. He's already had litmus tests. Angelo Leo, the guy who won the title from, terrific, and he was in a great fight. Brandon Figueroa, fantastic. In a close fight, they could have gone either way, but Fulton got the win, and, and you can't argue with that. If there's a thing that I would have to say to you, what would you want to see from Stephen Fulton? It would be to be hit less more, less often, to not make every fight a, a war, because he's an offensive machine, but he's not a big puncher. Mm. So, and the 122-pound division has talent galore. So you, he could keep having fights exactly like this, and it, it shortens your career a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. So if there's something we're looking for from him with the Danny Roman fight, I think it would be maybe pick your spots a little bit more. Uh, now, now, it's going to be hard, though, because Danny Roman isn't a guy that lets you do that. But if he can find a way to do it and not get hit as much, I think that would be helpful to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and can you also tell us a little bit about um, David Morrell in the co-main? A lot of oh, yeah, uh, listeners yeah. may not have, have seen him fight yet. He's only 6-0, and but he's really on a fast track after a fantastic amateur career. He is. And the man he's fighting is a decent fighter. Sin Hot Sauce Henderson is a good fighter. Not a, a upper echelon, but very good. Um, so it's kind of an interesting test at this point for Morel, but you can't even say test because you're, when you say fast track, Morel's name is among the three that David Benavides and his management team mention as a the next possible <laughs> opponent. You know, Caleb Plant, um, Jamal Charlo, or Morel. Well, yeah. Is it too soon? Is it too much too soon? I think the jury's definitely still out on that. Morel's a good fighter, but and he had great amateur experience. And we've seen some fighters in recent times, the Lomachenkos, the Inuways, um, I'm, I'm missing a couple others you guys might remember, but like that, who have been in championship fights in their eighth or ninth or 10th fights or even sooner. Uh, so it can happen. I think we'll all be looking very carefully at Morel uh, to see how he handles a guy like Henderson. If you're, and Henderson being a good fighter, not a great fighter, but definitely a good fighter, I think it's almost incumbent upon Morrell, if, if we're to believe he's ready to face David Benavides yet, he needs to dominate in this mm -hmm. fight. Um, totally separate topic here. In, in a couple of weeks, the International Boxing Hall of Fame holds yes. its first induction ceremony since 2019. Mm -hmm three classes enshrined at once. Uh, you were inducted in, in 2012. We always urge fans to attend if they can, um, but not so much the fans. W what can the inductees expect? What, what kind of an experience is it? What do you remember most from your it's induction? It's very really unique. I, I don't know if you guys, I've been to a few other Hall of Fame in other sports, Hall mm. of Fame uh, ceremonies. Boxing is very different. For one thing, it's in this it's, I mean, most Hall of Fames, for whatever reason, are in smaller communities, right? They're never in, uh, whether it's Cooperstown right. or Canton or Springfield, they're never in like New York City or whatever. Right. They, you know, they're all small. But Boxing's is really in Canastota, a, a, a small community. 
that welcomes this once a year. And the what makes the Boxing Hall of Fame experience different than others is the proximity of fans and the 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 various honorees and other boxing personalities that are there. Everybody is mingling completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're inducted, it's overwhelming. It may be overwhelming emotionally and in other, in, in other ways, uh, mentally. It's also overwhelming just physically because the fans are there. They're right there. You sign 4 billion autographs, take a million <laughs> pictures and, and it's nonstop. When, I, when Joe Calzaghe was inducted, I was there. That was, it was after I was, I think it was a few years through two or three years after I was inducted and he, and I, I was in the men's room and he comes into the men's room and he's like flustered and he's walking around and he hadn't even, he didn't even use the bathroom. And I said, you all right, Joe. He said, yeah. I said, I just had to find some place where I could be alone for like, two <laughs> and, and he's a great guy. Joe's a yeah. person. And I was like, yeah, I get it. You know, but, but that also is what makes it even more endearing for you because mm. you're feeling an outpouring of love from people. Mm. And it's, I'll never forget sitting there at the year I was inducted before you go up on Saturday night, there's a dinner and you're sitting there and they have you all, they have chairs along the wall with everyone's name on it for you. So you can line up in order and everyone goes and sits on the chairs. And it's a big long and the dais has like 50 people on it. And I, I was looking this way and I, 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 I got up as if I was just trying to stretch and I took a step out and everybody was on their chairs. I looked from left to right and on those 50 chairs was the history of boxing mm-hmm. for 40 years. And I said, look at this, you know, to be in this room. So I think almost no one that I know that's been inducted isn't hit with the enormity of that Mm. uh, situation. Yeah. And obviously you've been doing a lot of traveling to fights weekend after weekend. Are are you by chance going to be able to, uh, to make it this year? I'm actually going to go be, uh, I'm not going to be, here's, here's the irony. I'm going to be in, uh, I'm helping out the Showbox folks. uh, They have a broadcast uh, two nights before the induction ceremony. And so I'm going to be there kind of as their roving uh, interviewer to interview some of the celebrities that are there uh, and the, and the different boxing people. But I have to get back to Las Vegas. So I'm not going to actually be at the induction um, ceremony, which presents a challenge because you have three classes. So right. it could be a pajama party, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of people there. And, uh, and sometimes this will come as a shock, I'm sure. Even though you want people to cut down on the length of their speech, they don't always do that. Yeah. Right, right. Well, with, with three but class- it's going to be a wonderful weekend. With three yeah. classes, so they're going to have to tighten up the speeches a little bit. But I'm 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 a glad bit, to hear yeah. I'm glad to hear that you're you're going to be there because we are uh, intending to be there as well, doing a lot Excellent. of interviews. But but we will not be roving. We'll be we'll be sitting reporters. We'll be leave the roving to you. Spot. Yes. I am I am apparently supposed to rove, so okay. I'm attempting to rove. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, we haven't yet ascended to the level where we're trusted with roving. <laughs> So you <laughs> right. have to you have to be at a certain level, I think. They feel like stationary is better for you guys. It, exactly, yeah. it's like the intro yeah. level. So right. yeah, someday, well, I, someday I don't know we aspire. Rover, I'm going to be. So I could be <laughs> now. Since I'm speaking to you, we can all remember the Irish Rovers. <laughs> right. <laughs>
exactly. Great folk group. I remember them. Indeed. <laughs> um, final question for you, and it's sort of related to the Hall of Fame. I mean, I don't know, maybe you know how many fights you've called over the years, but I'm curious whether when you look back on your career, if there's one fight, either while you've been doing it or, or perhaps, you know, from time past, that you didn't get the opportunity to call, that you would have loved to have had the opportunity to call? Mm. Well, you mean just watching it, that I was watching it, but I sure, didn't or it might have might have even exactly you were you were watching it, or, or maybe it was even back from history where you thought, oh, that would have been a great fight. Oh yeah, so many fights that you think, wow, wouldn't it have been fascinating yeah. to be doing it? I'll, I'll tell you one that this just pops to my head and 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 i could probably think of 20 more after we're done with the interview but one of them is there are two the first ali frazier fight or the third yeah um i i, I believe it would be would have been fascinating to be announcing those fights because they had so many shifts in 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 rhythm style and effectiveness of each fighter. There was so much leading up to that to talk about in terms of where was the fighter at and that you could just throw in a, a small portion of it and analyzing the, the, the actual action. So those are two fights that uh, just pop into my mind, uh, you know, that, oh man, that, you know, if I could go back and, you know, and, and call them, it would be, it would be great. Can you, I'm curious, actually, do you ever, when you're watching a fight, do you find yourself calling it in your head? Yes. Mm. I, well, I find myself thinking, uh, I do find myself thinking, what would I be doing here? Mm. You know, what would, I, I try to watch it as a fan so I can enjoy mm. it. You know, mm. I, I, I'm not, I, I try to take a step. First example is I was sitting in the stands for the Tyson Fury uh, Wilder fight number three. Mm. Uh, I had, they, I was just there as a fan. I was sitting, I wasn't even in the press area. So I was reacting as a fan, but even on that one, I couldn't help but think, and I tried not to say anything out loud because that's obnoxious, but, <laughs> you know, but, but then people were asking me because I was there in the fan thing. They'd say, Oh, what about so-and-so and that and that, you know, but, but uh, yeah, you, I think you do. Uh, and you try not to, I, I, my wife's a singer. She's been a singer for, you know, was a singer for 40 years. And I often, She's not one, she's not a super critical or critique her person, but, but many times I've asked her if she, and we'll be done with a concert and it'll be in her mind, what, what song should they have opened with songs? Mm. So should, I, I think it's inevitable that we do that, right? Mm. I even think writers do it. I think mm. writers do it um, because they're looking at, let's say somebody's covering something and you say, well, I would have led with this in my lead right. mm -hmm. and I would have done that. Uh, a little bit. You can't help but do it. Yeah. Yeah. Al, thank you so much for putting some time aside on this Memorial Day to join us on the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Good to be with you guys. And uh, I'll, I'll get a chance to see you at the uh, in Canastota. That'll be fun. Yeah. Gotcha. Really looking forward to it. I'll be Thanks, the one rocking Al. the pink suit. <laughs> You'll be, yeah. I, well, I know you guys have given me some. Whenever I'm on the show, I leave with something. I leave with, <laughs> advice, I leave with uh, a feeling so. I am going to somewhere down the road here. You're going to at least see me in a tan suit. Okay. Okay. But didn't, didn't somebody get in trouble once for wearing a tan right. suit? Right. Tan, tan yeah. suits can be very controversial. I don't know. <laughs> I stick with, stick with the hot pink.
Maybe yeah, the hot pink's better. Yeah. There you go. All right, guys. <laughs> Al, thanks, thanks Al. very much, Ray. Thank care. you. As we just noted with Al, we are in the midst of a lengthy sequence of fight nights on Showtime and Showtime pay-per-view. And next Saturday, the Armory in Minneapolis, Minnesota plays host to the latest edition in the form of a Showtime Championship Boxing doubleheader. The action kicks off with super middleweight contest featuring 6-0 David Morrell fighting out of Minneapolis by way of Cuba and 15-1-1 Calvin Henderson. Eric, what can you tell us about both these fighters and what's your pick? I'll go a bit unconventional here and start with the on-paper B-side in this matchup, Calvin Henderson, because we've talked about him before. We've had exposure Mm -hmm. to him on Showtime. Hot Sauce Henderson. Love that nickname. Uh, We saw him lose a close decision to Isaiah Steen on Showbox last July. We also saw him fight to an eight-round draw with Jenk Plana on Showbox in 2019. He's a guy who got a later start as a pro. He's 31 years old and Still at what I'd say is the tail end of being a prospect, maybe. Um, He was the B-side against Steen as well, and I thought performed pretty well. It was a very close fight. He injured his shoulder in the fourth round of that fight and still kept it competitive. He's not the most skillful boxer. He he needed to drag Steen into a rumble, and and he couldn't quite make that happen and pull out the win. But Calvin Henderson, solid, sturdy guy fighting out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Natural lefty who fights righty. Tough out for most super middleweights, but clearly the quote-unquote opponent here. David Morrell, he's fought on several Fox PBC shows, but this is his first time on Showtime. Full name, Osvary David Morrell Gutierrez Jr. Glad he's going by David Morrell. That's a little easier. Um, He had a reported amateur record of 130 and 2. And like some of the best Cuban amateurs, he is moving very quickly as a pro. His third fight was a 12-rounder for some silly interim title not worth specifying. He's knocked out five of his six opponents, and all five of those knockouts have come inside four rounds. The most meaningful, I'd say, a fourth-round TKO of Alantes Fox in December. Also, he is a lefty who, unlike Calvin Henderson, fights as a lefty. And he's been very vocal in calling out David Benavidez under his assumption that he will get past Calvin Henderson. So... Will he? Uh, I will make my pick. And uh, boy, oh boy, David Morrell is dangerous with both the straight left hand and the right hook. There's a lot for Henderson to worry about here. Morrell's not the most quick-fisted guy, and he gets a little wild at times, but he's experienced. He knows what he's doing in there, and he can really pop. And I think Henderson is going to learn quickly that this isn't Isaiah Steen. This is the next level of talent. I don't know whether Morrell can make David Benavidez his bitch, as he has vowed to do, uh, but I do expect him to take a step closer to that opportunity. I'm going to say he stops Henderson just outside that four-round marker. I'll go KO5 in a one-sided fight. How about you? Yeah, this does not feel like um, a matchup that's being made with the expectation that either man has an equal likelihood of winning. This, This feels like this is about Morrell. Um, about showcasing him. I mean, he lives in Minneapolis now, and 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 that's where the fight is taking place. Um, but it is perhaps about trying to see if he can go uh, some rounds against a, a, a durable opponent. There's an interesting clash of style element here. Um, Morel just does not do much with his jab at all. He's got like this flicking rangefinder of a punch, which is designed to just bring him just in range to fire straight rights and, and those southpaw lefts. 
Henderson, you know, on the other hand, is 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 happier to work behind the jab if if he possibly can. He's not by any means a bad fighter, like you said, Calvin Henderson. You know, after he lost to Steen on Showbox last year, I think we were both quite complimentary of him, even mm-hmm. though he had lost that fight, and and we felt that we were, would be pretty happy to see him again. But I think we were both thinking in terms of Showbox rather than you know Showtime Championship boxing co-main event against a, an up-and-comer like like Morel. There are levels here. Um, and, and for me, the question is, can Henderson survive? And if not, you know, uh, how long can he make it last? I, I think it's going to be very hard for him. I, I just don't know that he has what it takes to keep Morel off him for, for, for 10 rounds. Uh, he will hang in there for a few. I think he'll find it harder and harder to stay away from Morel's onslaught. Um, I might give him... I'm going to give him a round longer than you. I'm okay. going to say that he succumbs in round six. Okay. Uh, the main event on this card is in the 122-pound division, and it features one of our favorites against a veteran who is almost guaranteed to produce high-quality action every time he steps into the ring. It's Stephen Coolboy Steph Fulton, 20-0 with eight KOs, whom we most recently saw scoring a majority decision win over fellow titleist Brandon Figueroa in Las Vegas in November. He squares off against Daniel Roman, who is 29-3-1 with 10 KOs. Kieran, break down the styles of both men and hit me with your prediction. Neither man, of course, is a stranger either to our listeners or to you know, folks who have been watching boxing consistently for the last several years. Um, we know all about Fulton. And about the fact that actually we keep learning more about him with every outing. Um, yep. He's a wonderfully skilled and talented boxer. He can glide around the ring and bamboozle you with his footwork and hand speed. But as we've seen, particularly in his two most recent contests, he's also perfectly capable of and comfortable with stepping forward, standing in the pocket, and trusting his hand speed and combinations to beat you on the inside. He took apart Angelo Leo that way. And he also used that ability to suck it up and outgut and outslug Brandon Figueroa. Uh, in some respects, he had little choice but to do that in both contests. You know, Leo and Figueroa, they're different kinds of fighters, but they're come forward pressure guys. And Fulton made the calculation that it's going to be more effective to meet them coming in, or, you know, particularly in the case of Figueroa, he was forced to do that. Um, but he was able to do that and come away with the victory. And, and that's what makes the clash, I think, with Roman so intriguing, because, again, while not being a clone of Figueroa or Leo, Roman's very much in that mold. Um, he might well be the most dangerous of, of those three. It, the space where Roman likes to work is in the pocket. He doesn't like to be right on top of you, where he can smother his own punches, unlike Figueroa. He likes to work in close, but not too close. Throw in steadily, repeatedly, breaking you down, forcing you to engage on his terms. It's exceptionally difficult to beat Roman on those terms, but it's also exceptionally difficult to fight him any other way. Hmm. If you're new to Danny Roman, you might hear that record that, that you just mentioned, Eric, of 29-3-1 and, and think, eh. But he started his career 10-2-1 and, and then went on a 17-fight unbeaten streak. And then he came up just short against the excellent Murajan Akhmadaliev. Just short yeah. against Akhmadaliev. And Akhmadaliev is very, very good. So what's going to happen here? Look, I think Fulton perhaps initially is going to try to box on the retreat a little bit to draw Roman onto him to try and encourage him to reach and be off balance and then hit him with, with counter flurries and slide away. But I don't know that he's going to be able to get away with that all night. I think at some point, Roman's going to be on him and in that space enough that Fulton is going to be forced to engage. He's not simply going to stand in the pocket and trade Fulton. He's, he's too smart to do that. But he's going to have no choice but to spend some of his time exchanging combinations. We know that Fulton's fine with that. 
But against Roman, he's going to be facing someone with more experience and skill and honestly faster hands, Danny Roman, than either Leo or Figueroa. Um, the one thing I think that Fulton most has going for him here is that Roman can be hit. When he is exchanging in the pocket, he can be tagged. And he doesn't tend to get tagged just once. He can be tagged, especially up against someone with good hand speed, two or three times in quick succession. He kind of keeps his head there when he gets hit. And I think that's what Fulton's going to try and do when they're in the pocket. Fire a combination and move away. But man, Roman is going to make it very, very difficult for him. This is going to be a tough, tough night for both guys. And there may be some divergent scorecards in there because a couple of rounds may be a little difficult to uh, to score. I do think Fulton's going to win. I think it's going to be by decision. I've been going back and forth a little bit in my head as to whether it's going to be a unanimous one or not. I really have a very high regard for Danny Roman. I was tempted to say this might be a majority decision or split decision, but I think I've talked myself into it being a very close but unanimous decision win for Cool Boy Steph. Okay, we're we're closely aligned here, though it sounds like you see maybe a slightly closer fight than I do. I, I'm a full believer in both of these guys, but it, it's different levels of, of belief. Uh, with with sure. Fulton, it's like this guy is likely to make the pound-for-pound pound list soon kind of belief. With Roman, it's this guy will give anyone a tough night belief. Right. Um, he's real good. I don't see what he's going to be able to do better than Brandon Figueroa did. And acknowledging that Brandon Figueroa very nearly beat Stephen Fulton. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say we will see a little more of the boxing on his toes version of Fulton. I think he has edges in quickness and slickness that he should exploit. But, you know, as you said, not going to be able to box and move all, all 12 rounds. Roman's going to force him to trade, and he, he will be willing to trade some punches at times, try to land some hard shots, especially body shots, to keep uh, Roman honest. But I think we will see him box a little more than he did against Figueroa and Angelo Leo. I can't see any way this fight is not an entertaining meshing of styles. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a really good, well-paced fight, but Fulton will be a half step ahead most of the way. And so for me, it's Fulton winning a comfortable unanimous decision at the end scores more in like the 117, 111 range. Okay. Um, there are a couple of significant non-Showtime fight cards to look forward to as well. In Australia, George Cambosis Jr. defends the lightweight championship he won from Teofimo Lopez against Devin Haney. That'll be on Saturday on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. Although, I guess in Australia, it'll be Sunday by the time I it happens. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tremendous battle of unbeatens there. And next Tuesday, technically after our next podcast drops, but we ought to discuss it now, from Japan and also on ESPN+, Plus, the rematch between Nonito Dene and the top dog at Bantamweight, Naoya Inoue. Kieran, what are you looking forward to here? Well, both of them. <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah, you know what's interesting? One of the things that's kind of interesting, if a little humbling to me, is um, these four fighters include two whom I utterly dismiss uh, <laughs> before mm. recent fights. I rashly gave Cambosis essentially no chance against Teofimo Lopez. I, I simply didn't think he had what it took to upend Lopez. And yeah, Lopez helped my, make life easier for him with some less than ideal preparation and was also, you know, carrying an, an, an illness under the fight. But, you know, still, Cambosa showed tremendous grit and determination and self-belief, as well as a well-constructed and well-executed game plan to take the title from him. Um, thought there was no way he would emerge victorious. But here he is, about to defend his newly won titles in front of what will be an enormous hometown crowd. And, um, and of course, 
I also did not hesitate to hope beyond hope repeatedly that Donaire would somehow not have to face a away the first time. Right. Um, I genuinely felt concerned for his safety, but as it was, he put on a sensational, albeit losing effort, when he and Inoue first met back in November 2019. So am I acknowledging the error of my ways and picking both to win this time around? I'm not, actually. <laughs> but um, I'd still make, I'm still making Haney the favorite, but not necessarily by a particularly wide margin, especially given the absence of his father and Ben Davison from his corner, and given that he's in Australia. I think Haney's more skilled than Cambosis, but he does sometimes come across as somewhat diffident in the ring. I still find... You know, out of the the four princes, um, I always found him the the more difficult one to kind of pin down, Devin Haney. Um, right. In a way, I make fairly clear favorite against an error again, although he has come off the boil a little bit by his lofty standards in a way. His last two outings were so-so. I mean, dominant wins, but not against the type of opposition that should be lasting too many rounds against him. Um, honestly, either way, it's to the immense credit of both Cambosis and Donaire that these fights are even happening let alone that there's legitimate interest and genuine uncertainty uh, regarding their outcomes. Yeah, th- these are both tremendous fights, although, of course, there is some concern that this time Nanito gets the sure. career-closing beating that he so magnificently avoided the first time. But, you know, the way he looked against Tubali and Gabayo last year, you got to respect his chances of making a fight of it again. And maybe with his punching power, just maybe he lands something. You, you can't discount the possibility. It seems like you are right in line with the odds makers in terms of the way you view both of these fights. Uh, okay. Daener is about a plus 370 underdog to pull it off. And Cambosos Haney, the sports books have that one real close. Haney, the challenger, is a favorite at minus 175. Cambosos, a plus 145 dog. And Man, the lightweight division, it's just so crowded at the top. Cambosos, Gervonta, Teofimo, Lomachenko, Haney. Yeah. I have no idea how to rank them. Then there's Ryan Garcia right below them, Pitbull Cruz, Jeremiah Nakatila, Jojo Diaz. Great division. This is a tremendous fight. Cambosos is the lineal champ, so whoever wins this fight is the one true champion. But you can have a long debate about who's the best, no yeah. matter who wins this fight in Australia. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Time now for the news. And I don't think there's much doubt about this week's main uh, event. Uh, Canelo Alvarez has announced that he will temporarily forego a rematch with Dmitry Bivol to take on Gennady Golovkin for a third time on September 17th. Uh, Venue is TBD, but apparently most likely Las Vegas. Eric, we will have plenty of time to break this down and preview it, but you've touched on odds for a couple of fights already in this podcast. What are the odds makers saying at this early stage? And do you have any preliminary thoughts about the matchup? So it's interesting. Before Canelo lost to Bivol, I was a little more down on Canelo Triple G3. You know, watching Triple G struggle like he did with Murata appeared to confirm my suspicion that he was going to be something of a punching bag against Canelo. Then Canelo loses to Bivol, and... I think that helps cover up the mismatch potential here. Um, I still don't see it ending well for Golovkin, but I definitely think it's more marketable now, even Mm. if Canelo's individual marketability took a hit against Bivol. The odds, I think they're a bit closer than they would have been if Canelo had beaten Bivol. At DraftKings, specifically, Canelo is minus 390. Triple G is plus 295. There are no props this early, uh, but I will be on the lookout 
I'm hoping Canelo by KO won't be minus money. If I can get even money or better on that, I'm definitely betting it. Um, and maybe the Bivol fight helps me get a little extra value mm. there. Um, but just to circle back to our discussion last week, this is the right career move for Canelo coming off the loss. You know, a Bivol rematch can happen later. I don't think the situation calls for the immediate attempt at revenge. If Canelo looks good and beats Triple G, then Bivol Canelo 2 in 2023, if he wants to do it, is even bigger. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be intrigued, you know, by what the difference will be with the fight being at, at 168. Um, I, I had assumed basically that it's just going to be you know, a mistake for Golovkin or not, or just not going to work well for Golovkin, who's always fought at 160 and isn't a big middleweight. But conversely, at his time, at his time of life, at his stage in his career, maybe not having to shave off those extra few pounds will make a little bit of a difference and, and reinvigorate him. And there's always that thing, of course, if one was to, you know, be devil's advocate. They fought 24 basically even rounds. And maybe it's just one of those deals where whatever happens... It's going to be another 12, and at the end of it, it'll be 36 fairly even rounds. Some fighters are just meant to just go even up against each other, even when you think they aren't. And maybe, just maybe, and this is going to be the argument, I think, that they're going to use to sell the fight, particularly right. after what we saw with Canelo and Bivol, that maybe these two guys just have each other's number, and maybe we will get one really good uh, final fight out of, the, out of the two of them. And that's obviously the angle that they're going to pitch, and it's going to be much easier to do, like you said, after the Bivol fight. Yeah. All right. In other news, uh, following the unveiling of a life-size bronze statue of him in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, former heavyweight titleist Deontay Wilder announced his intention to continue his career despite suffering back-to-back -back stoppage defeats to Tyson Fury. He said, so many people have told me, come back, come back. I'd say I'm back by popular demand and the business of boxing needs me. When there's a thriving American champion, there's nothing like it. When there's not, you see it's dead. There's a drought. People know the difference now. Kieran, is Deontay right? Does the business of boxing need him? And he's 36 years old now. Can he still be a force in the heavyweight division? Well, I'm not sure the business of boxing needs any one boxer. I mean, Floyd Mayweather's been retired long enough to enter the Hall of Fame in a couple of weeks. And Manny Pacquiao is retired. They're the two biggest names by a mile and a half over the last decade and change. And boxing's doing terrific business without them. Um, there's always somebody else waiting in the wings. But it is always good, especially for American fight fans, obviously, to have an American heavyweight. And look, I think there's every reason to believe Wilder can still be a force in the division. Look, if Tyson Fury really is retired, honestly, Wilder could still yet ascend to become champion. He's limited. We know that. His stamina is suspect. His footwork and balance at times are awful. But the man is box office. He can punch like a mule on steroids. And who else would you back to bring out those weaknesses in him? Fury had that unique combination of size and skills. Usyk has the skills. Does he have the size to withstand Wilder's bombs? Um, the, Wilder hasn't done himself a ton of favors after the Fury fights with some of the excuse making, but that'll be forgotten the moment he starts knocking people out again. Um, I'd be happy for him as I'm happy for any boxer if he decides he's made enough money and taken enough punches and, and retired. But right. I do think the heavyweight division will be livelier and better for his being back in the mix. He's that sort of dangerous, unpredictable, heavy punching wild card that... Sure. Uh, we're sort of missing at the moment, I think, in the upper echelons of the division. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of other matchups on the horizon, it seems. Golden Boy Promotions announced their up-and-coming welterweight stud Virgil Ortiz Jr. will return to the ring August 6th against once-beaten David Anessian and TVA in Nicaragua. 
has reported that the rubber match between Chocolatito Gonzalez and Juan Francisco Estrada, which had been slated for March 5th, but was then postponed because Estrada was suffering from the lingering effects of COVID, may now be taking place in September or October, with Estrada bypassing a planned battle with Titleist Joshua Franco. Uh, Eric, I know you're looking forward to at least one of these. Uh, are you, in fact, looking forward to them both? Um, I'd say I'm looking forward to one and a half of them. You know, I'm, you I'm, f- I'm fully looking forward to Chocolatito Estrada 3, which among other things, will help clarify some of the mess toward the bottom of my pound-for-pound top 10. Um, Avanesian, he's fine. He he lost in his step-ups most of his career, but is on a career-best run lately, bumping off a bunch of good prospects. But I suspect he'll find Virgil Ortiz is a great prospect, and uh, this won't be the most competitive fight. So I I have B-level interest in that one, and obviously a level interest in Chocolatito and JFE. Does anyone call him JFE? I'm not sure. They do now. I do. They do now. All right. Okay. Okay. See if that sticks. Um, Finally, in sad news, Gary Russell Sr., the patriarch of the Russell family of fighters that includes Gary Jr., Gary Antoine, and Gary Antonio, died after a lengthy battle with health problems, including diabetes. He was 63. Kieran, your thoughts on the passing of the senior Russell? Oh, that poor family has had to deal with too much heartbreak lately. Yeah. Um, I mean, first the loss of one of the brothers, Gary Busa, in late 2020. Now this. Um, look, as you mentioned, Gary Sr. had been battling diabetes. He had to have his left foot amputated last year. You can tell, as we know, especially from talking to Gary Jr., what an immensely tight, tight-knit family the Russells are. Yeah. Um, Gary Sr. helped turn his sons into tremendous boxers. But more importantly, he helped them develop as excellent men. Uh, he leaves a legacy to be proud of. And our condolences very much with the Russell family. And, and may Gary Sr. rest in peace. Certainly. Well said. Um, all right. Let's wrap up the show with the top five list. And last week, spinning off of Davis Romero at Barclays Center, you challenged me to rank the top five fights in the history of that arena in Brooklyn. This was tough. My uh, my box wreck clicking finger is now in a sprint from all this work. Um, there was a lot to choose from. A lot of very good to great fights in that building, although no fight of the year winners. Um, I had thought in my memory that Heard versus Lara, which came up on another recent top five, was at Barclays. So I thought I was penciling that in for a possible number one, but uh, nope, that was in Vegas. Um, so what I ended up with was a strong top three that I think could really go in any order, a clear number four, and then a wide open competition for number five. Um, Before I get into my list, I will just say, if I miss some great off-TV undercard bout or something, my apologies. I could only dig so deep here. Um, Oh, and and a quick spoiler. My number one is not Garcia Salka. I'll end the (laughs) suspense now on that one. Uh, Okay, so at number five, and I will acknowledge again, there might be, 10 other options for this spot, but I'm going with the main event of an April 11th, 2015 card. Danny Garcia's next fight after Rod Salka, as it turned out, his majority decision win over Lamont Peterson, one of several excellent 12-round fights in this building for Danny Garcia, but I think this was maybe narrowly the best of them. Fast pace, close all the way. One judge had it even. Two judges had Garcia, 115-113. This was the overlap between the heart of Garcia's prime and the later stages of Peterson's prime. Just two good, honest fighters going at it on even terms for 12 rounds. So you'll hear my 
long list of runners up at the end. Maybe one of them was marginally better than this. I didn't rewatch all these fights, but sure. based on my best recollections, I'm leaning Garcia Peterson for the five spot. Yeah, this was one of those that I had. I had a top three that I was reasonably comfortable with in some order, a fourth that, you know, I, I think could be in there, and then about 12 equal fifths. Okay, um, right. So we're in pretty much the same boat with yeah, the, the way it shook down. Yeah. This was one of my possible equal fifths. It, I almost just stuck a pin in in one to, to, to pick number five. Um, this was up there, unquestionably. But uh, I do have another fight from the card uh, actually on my list, but I'm um, mm. not sure if you do or not. Um, judging by that, mm, you don't. But uh, yeah, no, I think this was definitely one of the better ones. Okay. Um, so this next one at number four for me, I thought this was pretty easy in that this fight was definitely better and more memorable than Garcia Peterson. Not quite as good as my top three. The only heavyweight fight on my list. I had to get Deontay Wilder on here. This was not a fight that made me and you into memes, Kieran. Uh, this was <laughs> Wilder KO10 Luis Ortiz in their first fight, March 3rd, 2018. I picked Ortiz to win this fight, as I recall. I just was not sold on Wilder. He hadn't fought anyone nearly as good as King Kong Ortiz. I thought this was the night he would get exposed. It was a struggle. Wilder was rocked a few times, most notably in the seventh when he seemed on the verge of getting stopped, but he also dropped Ortiz in the fifth and put him down twice and out in the tenth. Just a tremendous fight between two legit punchers, a precursor to the excitement that the Wilder Fury series would bring, and it did a massive rating on Showtime, never a bad thing. So that's my pick for number four. So we're going to have a divergent list because this was actually my number one. Oh, okay. Um, and I can see the know, case. Okay. Yep. I, I thought it was wildly in, in, enthralling. And um, even if at times some of the swinging was was a little wide and desperate just for the raw, visceral excitement of it all and the sense of, oh, my God, this could end at any time. Uh, I thought this was a thrilling contest. I seem to remember being at um, the small room at Madison Square Garden on the same night. And I honestly couldn't tell you. I could look it up, but pff, where's the fun in that? Right. Um, who it was. But it was not as entertaining as this. And I was following the social media accounts mm. of this fight, thinking, aww. Um, <laughs> uh, no, so this was my number one. So I'm now super intrigued to see what else you have in your top three. Yeah, I'm guessing that uh, two of my top three are the other ones in your top I'm three, sure. and maybe the shocked. other one is 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 your four. But uh, let's see. Um, like I said, I think any order among my top three is acceptable. And if I rewatched all 36 rounds of these fights, spoiler there that these all went the distance, um, I might feel better about my order. But there's only so much time in the day, especially when you have to make time to ice your injured box rec finger. So uh, here goes nothing. Uh, my number three, great drama. Very good action, but I'll put it at number three because I think it was tainted by a highly questionable decision. June 14th, 2014, Chris Algieri split decision over Ruslan Provodnikov. Algieri was down twice in round one. His eye was swelling shut. This is a mismatch. It looked like it's over with. And then he pulled off a poor man's Juan Manuel Marquez versus Pacquiao. He got through the scary opening round, he used his skills, and he boxed his way back into the fight, confounded Provodnikov at times, never hurt him. Hurting opponents was never really Chris's thing, um, but he piled up points with two of the three judges. 
I frankly didn't think Algieri quite pulled it off, nor did one judge who had it 117-109 for Provodnikov, but the other two went 114-112 for Algieri. It was an inspiring performance and a wildly dramatic fight, so even with the questionable decision, it's good enough to make it my number three. I also had this as number three. Okay. Um, uh, again, another fight that I somehow managed to not be ringside for. I think I was like out of the country or something. Mm. Um, and I remember we had um, Chris Algieri on our old podcast um, sometime, a short time after that. And of course, yeah. he looked a mess. Uh, I think <laughs> right. he looked he much better by the time he was on our podcast. But he still, I think you're right that he still kind of had a shiner when we, yeah. when we talked to him. Yeah. And I just remember just as a sign that Chris was always a good talker. I remember saying, asking him, so what did you think when you looked in the mirror? And he goes, I thought, that's a champion. And I thought, that, sir, <laughs> is a line. good response. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Uh, number two for me, and this could easily be number one, uh, June 25th, 2016. One of the biggest ratings that boxing has drawn in recent years, as this was a major fight that aired on CBS, Keith Thurman, W12, Sean Porter. It was a fight of the year candidate, nip and tuck all the way. The action never slowed. No signature moments necessarily, no knockdowns, but just such consistent action. And if you want to know how close it was, according to CompuBox, Porter landed 236 punches. Keith Thurman landed 235. Uh, Thurman's were maybe a tiny bit more impactful, as all three judges gave him the fight by a 115-113 score. But just a tremendous fight that was highly anticipated and then lived up to all the expectations and if I didn't already know what your number one was, if you told me this was your number one, I wouldn't dispute that choice. But I have it at number two. And, and it's it's sort of settling down. We're, we're not getting quite as much like complete and utter variance as I thought we would. <laughs> um, this was the one out of my list of 12 number fives that okay. I ultimately prompted the uh, plumped. To, to, to put in there on the list because okay. it was a terrific. Keith Thurman crops up a few times yep. uh, on my list, actually, as indeed does that Danny, Danny Garcia. <laughs> yep. um, there are a few names that do crop up here on this list. But yeah, I did think without any great conviction, right? I think um, had you come up with another one of those sort of almost equal fifths uh, I made a good case for it. I might have even gone, oh, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. I'll put that on, on, on my, uh, my list. But this was just about my number five on my list okay so we haven't hit your number two or your number four yet uh my number one probably has one of those spots we'll see it was on my 41st birthday july 30th 2016 on showtime action as good as the thurman porter fight but i'm making it my number one because it has the added drama of a slight upset result it wasn't quite the fight of the year, but it did propel the winner to some fighter of the year recognition. Yep. Carl Frampton's majority decision win over Leo Santa Cruz in a battle of unbeaten featherweights. Again, I'll quote some punch stats. Frampton, 242 of 668. Santa Cruz, a very Santa Cruz-y, 255 <laughs> of 1,002 punches thrown. Frampton was sharp and precise and won despite getting outworked. Scores of 117-111, 116-112, and 114-114 even on the third card. If not for Francisco Vargas Orlando Salido, either this or Thurman Porter could have been the 2016 fight of the year. I'm giving Frampton Santa Cruz the nod on this list as Frampton eked it out in a thriller to hand Santa Cruz his first defeat. Yeah, it was number two on my list. Okay. And I think, you know, in terms of quality, it was a better fight than my number one. Um, this, these were two. So you're absolute... admitting I'm right and you're wrong. Got it. Okay. I am. Absolutely wrong. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, you know, in terms of just like sustained action and, and just sustained intrigue and the overall quality of the of the contest, you know, this this was number one. It uh, it just didn't quite have that rocking back and forth drama of the one sure. that I picked for number one. But in terms of absolute boxing quality, this was a terrific, terrific contest. And so, yeah, I had it at number two and it perfectly deserves to be at number one. Okay, so we still haven't hit your number four. I'll run down all my honorable mentions, and I assume it's somewhere on here. Uh, in no particular order, um, a few draws. Uh, Arislandi Lara, Brian Castaño draw. James DeGale, Badu Jack draw. Peter Quill and Andy Lee draw. Um, a couple more from those welterweight round-robin fights. I have Thurman Garcia and Porter Garcia are both among my honorable mentions. Um, a couple of Austin Trout fights. His decision loss to Lara and his stoppage loss to Jared Hurd. This one wasn't that close, but it was memorable. The knockdown-filled Peter Quillen-Hassan Endam fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one that I was at working as the ringside scorer for NBC, Christoph Glavatsky's close decision win over Steve Cunningham. And huh. lastly, this one was fun while it lasted. Danny Jacobs KO to Sergio Mora with knockdowns uh, yeah. traded before an ankle injury prematurely ended Mora's night. Uh, anything I missed and was one of those your number four? Yeah, Lee Quillen was my number four, okay. actually. Um, yeah, I thought that was a wonderfully entertaining contest for people who don't remember it because it wasn't the main event. Um, Peter Quillen, who at the time was, was undefeated and really a rising star, uh, had our buddy Andy Lee down twice relatively early in the contest. Andy was cut, um, and at the end of round six... There was some con you know, discussion about whether the fight would be stopped. And Andy, being Andy, came out and knocked Quillen down in that very next round, the round yeah. seven, and, and got a draw out of it. So that was that was my number four. Um, yeah, I'm looking at my list here. I think you, you got Thurman Garcia, right? Yeah, mentioned, mentioned that. that yeah. Um, yeah, then I think we're just about the same. I also put in, you know, a couple that weren't close but that was sort of notable for different reasons. Uh, for pure uh, selfish sentimentality, I put um, uh, Deontay Wilder's uh, first round <laughs> knockout of Dominic Brazil. <laughs> right. Uh, just because we had to have it in there. Um, I put Jacob's TK1 Quillen just because it was memorable. Yeah. And, um, and just in a completely, like, it wasn't in any sense of anything a a great fight or a memorable one but i did put danny jacobs ko1 josh luteran because that was his first fight back from cancer and i thought that oh, and yeah. it was also on the first fight card of barclay center hmm. uh, and i was there for it so i just put that down for purely sentimentality reasons but otherwise i'm looking through my list here i don't think uh yeah i think we've got it all one really fun thing about this exercise was calling up each of these full cards on box rec and seeing all of the guys on undercards yes. who went Wasn't on it? to big things, but at the time, you know, it was the guy's second pro fight deep on one of these undercards. It was, it was kind of cool to see some of those names that I'm sure we knew nothing about at the time and then went on to, to big things. So that, that's the one upside of the exhaustive box rack research that went Yeah, I this. thought it was also interesting to see how many names consistently have fought at Barclays. Yeah. Uh, Heather Hardy's been fighting yes. there an awful lot. Yep. Uh, Adam Kanachki, mm -hmm. Dominic Brazil, Deontay Wilder, of course. Uh, I feel like I'm missing somebody else. There's a couple of others that really... I mean, some some guys that we've already mentioned. Danny Garcia, a Danny. bunch of main events. Amanda Serrano. Uh -huh. She's cheap. Pauli Malinaji a few times Malinaji. in the earlier yeah. days. Yep, yep, yep. Indeed. So there you go. See, you enjoyed it. It, you, it was fun. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it, but it had some redeeming qualities. There you go. 
honestly, that's basically pretty much the review that most people give of their interactions with me. <laughs> Didn't nice. enjoy it? That's already me quote. All right. I give it two stars, my interaction with Jared Mulvaney. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. That will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks very much to Al Bernstein for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week with a recap of the action here in the United States uh, on Showtime and in Australia. And uh, we'll have a first look ahead to this year's International Boxing Hall of Fame inductions. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.